Turn to Third John, letter of Third John. It's the third to last book in your Bible. And before we jump in, um, just to give you another roadmap of what we're doing in the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at the the book at, of First Sam First Samuel in two weeks. So we have a guest preacher next week. Don Ward will be preaching, missionary visiting us, and then we'll jump into First John. At the end of this service, we're going to have a bunch of those scripture journals that we're just we're giving away to anybody who would want one. Uh, what it is is it's the scripture of First and Second Samuel on the left, and then um, a journal entry with lines and a notebook essentially on the right. So you can you can t- use that for personal use. You can use that for sermon notes. So we just wanted to gift that to you. It's a great way to study God's word, and so please uh, grab one uh, on your way out, and we will purchase more if we if we run out. So we're in the letter of Third John. We're wrapping up this series. I was kind of getting nostalgic. I, I was putting away my John commentaries, and I was, and I just uh, got a couple new First Samuel commentaries um, because this is it. This is we're wrapping it all up. We've been in John since about uh, early this year, February or March, and um, and here we are at the last letter of John. So if you would please stand, we're going to read the entire letter. It's only fifteen verses. This is God's word. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, We ought to support people like these, that they may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we also add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you, greet the friends, each by name. This is God's word, you may be seated. Let's pray. Father, would you uh, root your word deep into our hearts as we read it, as we talk about it. Father, would you speak? Would you speak through your word, through the Holy Spirit? Would it change us and transform us and conform us into the image of Christ? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
So again, this is the last letter of John. Obviously, he does write another uh, book, which we know is Revelation. And at this point, he is uh, an old man, which I'll talk about later. But this is one of the more personal letters we have in the Bible. This and probably Philemon are, are two of the most kind of situational, personal letters. What I mean by that is he's writing to a man named Gaius. And he's calling out uh, a man named Diotrephes, um, who is dividing the church. Obviously, that's been a theme throughout 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, these groups, these people who are dividing the church and, and who need to be called, um, uh, called out for what they're doing. But it's a very personal letter. It's a very situational. There's not uh, a ton of uh, rich theological meat, so to speak. But we can learn a lot from this letter still. We can, we can learn a lot, and, and this is in our Bibles for a reason, and it's to teach us uh, much about how to interact and love one another and, and, and bear with one another and care for the body of Christ. I titled this sermon, No Greater Joy, and it's for, for what he says uh, there in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth, And as I considered how to wrap up all of John's writings in these three letters, I kept coming back to this theme of joy. And so where does John elsewhere talk about joy, and, and why was joy a major theme for John? If you go back to 1 John, verse 4 of chapter 1, he begins this letter, 1 John, by saying why he's writing in the first place. He says, I'm writing these things to you, so that our joy may be complete. So that's the, the great purpose of why he even wrote First John, that your joy, our joy, may be complete. In Second John, there's two places where he talks about joy. In verse 4 and verse 12 of Second John, verse 4, he says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. I rejoiced greatly. He had much joy to see them walking in the truth. And in verse 12, of John, two, uh, Second John, he says at the end of that letter, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. Very much the same way he ends um, this letter, talking about not wanting to just write, but wanting to see them face to face. Therefore, he would have joy. And obviously, in our, in our passage, he says that I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you're walking in the truth. And I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Why is joy such a central theme for John? Well, it could be that he talked, or he listened to someone tell him about joy um, so, uh, many years ago when he was a young man and a disciple of Jesus, where Jesus said to him and to the disciples that they need to keep his commands and that he's speaking these words to the disciples that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so we realize the great goal of, one of the great goals of, of being a Christian, a follower of Christ, is that we would have joy, is that we would be full of joy, that we as Christians should be joyful. We should be joyful. And why is it a central theme for John? Because without joy, we won't last very long. We won't stick it out in the church. 
And we won't endure, especially through hard and difficult times in our lives and in our walks. We won't last very long without joy. We need joy to fuel us up and to send us out and to keep us going. So what is joy? How do we define joy? Well, it's not mere temporary happiness or cheerfulness. True joy is to say, as in the words of John in verse 2 of our text, it is well with my soul. That is true joy. It's this deep-seated peace and calm that flows from a heart that has been blessed by God. So you can have joy in the midst of suffering. You can have joy as a believer in the midst of pain. It doesn't mean you can't grieve and you can't be sad, but joy is really this, this foundation of your life. And joy flows from several things for the believer. It flows from assurance of salvation. It, it flows from a knowledge that God in Christ is sufficient to provide us with all we need to be saved from our sin. To live a faithful life in response to His grace and to long for heaven where our joy will be made complete. So it's looking back to what Christ has done for us. It's looking forward to what we will enjoy. And when we do that, we will receive joy. So the main idea that John is, is communicating to us in this text is that God will grant you joy in three ways. When the journey is long, when we journey together, and when the journey is tough. He will grant us joy in those three ways. We're going to see how he does that in this, this letter. Well, first... Joy when the the journey is long. Notice how John describes himself in verse 1. He calls himself the elder. And I I said last week that, of course, he's a Presbyterian. That's why he's calling himself an elder, right? Elder Presbyterian. That's the root word. um, But I think what he's also saying there is he is is aged, right? He, He is older, Right? He is an old saint. He's been around a long time. He's probably, at this time of writing, in his 80s. And he is an elder, he calls himself, to the beloved guy as he's writing. So he's an old man, and he's doing ministry. So the journey can be long as a believer. I was reading a commentator, and he said, uh, he asked the question, when is the Christian retirement age? Right? When do you retire as a Christian? And Doug O'Donnell writes, the retirement age for Christian ministry is death. And he says, when I say the retirement age for Christian ministry is death, I mean that the most aged can pray and give, and some can even write and teach and counsel and host We never retire from gospel work. No matter how old you are, you never retire from gospel work. God has you here. Every day you're on this earth, he has you here to testify to Christ if you're a a believer. So he was likely in his 80s when he's writing this, and he hadn't even been exiled to the uh, island of Patmos yet where he writes Revelation. So really the best is yet to come for John, and he hasn't... He's probably in almost his 90s at that point. 
When I was in seminary, uh, I, what they would do in the church that I served in, they would give the young seminary guys who's learning how to preach. They'd send them to the funeral. The uh, the uh, they would send them to the nursing home, and they'd send them to the nursing home, and we would preach at the chapel services there, and for these uh, older saints. And uh, I loved doing that uh, because uh, by the by almost about three fourths of the way done, most of the people are sleeping uh, when you're about when you're almost done. Uh, but it was good. It was it was humbling, and it was but it was beautiful because you got you got to speak to these older saints. And I remember this one lady in particular who had served as a missionary for a lot of her life, and she was probably in her upper eighties, uh, early nineties, probably at the time. And she would just, we would just get to talk to these these people after the service. And I remember her sharing with me that she led Bible studies and she would evangelize to her friends there at the nursing home almost daily. It was a huge testimony to me that ministry does not end until the day you die as a believer. It doesn't end. So ask yourself, how are you planning to serve God in your latter days? How are you planning to do that? In, in one of his more famous sermons, John Piper, uh, he, he had this sermon that he titled, Don't Waste Your Life. It's actually, uh, his book is based on that title of the sermon, uh, and this sermon was at a youth conference many years ago, probably back in the 90s, late 90s. And it really was a transformative sermon for a lot of young people wanting to enter into the ministry after they heard this sermon and go into missions. It was that uh, impactful. And here he is, he's, he's probably in his 50s preaching to this, or 60s preaching to this youth group crowd. And in this sermon, he talks about two missionary ladies <clears throat> in their church who were serving in Cameroon earlier that year. And they were in their 80s, these two ladies, and, and the, the van that they were in, in Cameroon, went off a cliff, and they both perished. They both died. And he asks the youth there at this conference, is that a tragedy? These two older ladies serving out their days for the Lord, testifying to His grace, furthering the gospel message, living in joy, and they go off a cliff and die. Is that a tragedy? He says, no, it's not a tragedy. And then he, to contrast, he talks about this AARP magazine article he read. And it describes this couple living in retirement. You know, AARP, retired organization, helps you retire well. He tells this story that he read from this article. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. And now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. Piper says, that's a tragedy. And he says, there are billions, there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it, that tragedy. And he said, I get, here I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy that, that dream. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. He said, at the last chapter, before you stand before the creator of the universe, to give an account of what you did, what do you point to? What do you show the Lord in that last chapter of your life? Do you say, here it is, Lord, my shell collection. I've got a good swing on the golf course. I lowered my handicap. 
And look at my boat. Is that what you're going to tell the Lord in your latter, that you did in your last days? Piper said, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. And he quoted from this poem, one, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We've got to remember that there are eternal implications for how we live our life. And if you live out your latter days not serving the Lord, but only for yourself and your retirement, not only um, will you lose out in many ways, but you'll mostly lose out on joy. You see, joy in your Christian life will keep you going. As you get older, joy in the Lord will provide you with strength. John Piper also said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Our joy that we experience in the Lord is actually what makes Him look good and glorifies Him. And this joy has also been what has spurred missions and spreading of the gospel over the centuries. Leslie Newbegin said, There has been a long tradition which sees the mission of the church primarily as obedience to a command. It's been customary to speak of the missionary mandate. This way of putting the matter is certainly not without justification, and yet it seems to me that it misses the point. It tends to make a mission a burden rather than a joy, to make it part of the law rather than part of the gospel. If one looks at the New Testament evidence, one gets another impression. Mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot be possibly suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is more like the fallout from a vast explosion, a a radioactive fallout which is not lethal, but life-giving. It's an explosion of joy. Do you think about your Christian life like that? An explosion of joy. Do you think about our evangelizing, our missions, as something we get to do and participate in? So if you're here this morning and you're older, are you being tempted with the idea of retirement from Christian service? Are you being tempted by that? If so... Recommit yourself to serving Jesus every day you have left to bless others. And if you do that, your joy will increase. Your joy will increase. And younger people, do you have older saints in your life? If you're young here this morning, do you have older people in your life who display that joy, who've spent a lifetime in service to King Jesus? That joy will then become contagious to you as well. So that's how we get joy when the journey is long. That the Lord promised to, he promises to give us joy in our older years when the journey is long. Let's look at the second idea that joy we will receive joy when we journey together. Notice sort of what's going on in this letter in 3 John. He's writing to this man Gaius. We don't know exactly who Gaius is. Is really the only time we hear about him. But what we do know in this letter is that he's beloved, that John loves him, and most likely because they've served together in the church. He says, I love him in truth. And here he's writing to him, and he says, Beloved, Gaius, I pray that all may go well with you 
And you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Do you see how he's caring about this, this man who he's serving with? He's not just caring about his soul or just his body, but he's, look, at, look how he words that, that you would be uh, in good health as it goes well with your soul. So in this community of, of believers, we should be caring for each other in all of those ways, body and soul. And we have to do it together. We will not last long in the Christian life if we don't have others to journey with us. I thought this would be a good time to, to plug small groups. Uh, small groups, many of which took a break in the summer, are starting back up this fall. And we're going to have pamphlets out hopefully next Sunday with a listing of all the small groups that you can get involved in. We have about six that you can get involved in. And small groups are, are one of the best ways for you to go deeper in relationship with people and get to know people here in this church. So I hope you're a part of a small group. Uh, if you don't know anything about our small groups, you can talk to me, talk to any of the elders, and we'll get you plugged in with one. We have to journey together if we want to receive joy. He says in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in, in the truth. That's a bold statement. No greater joy. Is, he, is this some sort of hyperbole? I don't think so. I mean, you know this if you're a parent. If you're a believer in Christ and you're a parent, you feel this way for your children, don't you? That there is no greater joy for them that they're walking with in the truth, in, in Jesus. And you also know on the flip side of that that there's huge heartbreak when they're not. It's huge heartbreak. And you pray for them daily, I know. The most important achievement for our children is not their GPA, who they marry, their career, their net worth, the car they drive, or the college they go to. While some of those things have merit and are good to strive for, the most important factor that we want in our children's life is to see them walking with Jesus. Everything is secondary to that. And so let's not forget that. It's good to see successful children. It's good to see them doing well in the world. But if, they, if, if all they have is success in the world and they don't know Jesus, that's a tragedy. And that should cause us heartbreak. And so John is here talking about not just physical children, but, but spiritual children. Remember, these are not his physical descendants in verse 4. He's talking about the children that he has spiritually in the church that are walking in the truth. So, so this is very applicable to the church right now that you have spiritual children. If you're a member of this church, if you care and love people in this church, you have spiritual children. And those are, are, are children, but also anybody younger than you who you're able to mentor and teach to follow Christ. If you're in this church, you have spiritual ch- children just like John. And so what's happening in this letter is that he's encouraging Gaius Uh, in in his work as a believer in this church to support, to continue to support these missionaries that have been visiting the church. He says in verse 5, Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. So these are strangers who've been coming from church to church to, to preach the gospel. And he's been hospitable toward them, hosting them, having them over. And John is trying to encourage him and say, this is a good thing that you're doing. 
And notice what he's saying there, that strangers, though they are, you are, in your efforts, causing them to be brothers. And so that's a great example of how the gospel crosses boundaries with people you, you don't even know. There, there are people in this room who you don't know. But in Christ, you're brothers and sisters. And through your actions of love and care, uh, you make that even more a reality. And so that's what we're called to do. We're called to journey together, even if we have differences and we're not the, from the same area or same place or so, same socioeconomic level. But you know what? It takes sacrifice to journey together, doesn't it? Have you ever been hiking with people and say you're in a group of eight or nine? You have to sacrifice for those who want to go slower or maybe who are struggling. And you can't just go off on your own. Uh, you got to stay together and you got to slow down when you're hiking or, or going on any sort of walk or journey. It takes sacrifice to work together. And you can't be selfish if you're going to journey together. Uh, Tom Nelson writes, uh, about what Paul says in Acts 20. He's, he's hearkening back to Jesus' words where Jesus said, it is, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And Tom Nelson writes, Jesus' words are not some nice-sounding religious gibberish, nor by quoting them is Paul advocating a feel-good prosperity gospel that if you give, you'll receive. But Jesus and Paul both knew a transforming theological truth that when we embrace lifestyles of joyful generosity, even in times of difficulty, we experience the rich blessing of living as we were meant to live. That when you are generous, when you are uh, a self, a sac- when you're sacrifice things, and when you're not selfish, when you love people you'll experience the blessing of how we were meant to live. What he means by that is that we were created to be generous. He says, we were created to be generous, made in the image of a God who first generously created the world. Have you ever thought about that? That God was generous in creating the entire cosmos? And so we're to be like him in that way. And only uh, our corrupted nature is selfish. But our new creation life in Christ, if you're a believer restores our true generous nature. So nothing is more antithetical to a biblical view of human flourishing than selfishness. Nothing is spiritually more unnatural. Yet in our world where the norm is to see people through the lens of self-preservation, selfishness seems natural, even necessary. And so as believers, it grieves me when I see selfishness in my own heart and know that's not the way I ought to be. That's not the spirit of Christ in me. It's a blessing when we we journey together as believers. It's a blessing when I've been able to see people in this church who are struggling yet still committing themselves to the church. Who've gone through horrible tragedy and loss, but they're still here. And I see the, the sadness on their face, but I see the joy underneath the sadness. Melissa Kruger says, Our joy in the Lord stirs up fresh courage in others blessing our brothers and sisters in the faith. Your joy in the Lord will give me courage. And I hope mine does to you as well. To see the joy in others, believers, lifts us all up. And lastly, on this point of journeying together, our joy in God 
witnesses to the world around us. That as we sang about in the first song, that they'll know we're Christians by our love. They'll also know we're Christians indifferent by our joy. By the joy that we have through suffering. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, If ever the world needed the witness and testimony of Christian people, it's at this present time. And he wrote in the middle of the 1900s. The world is unhappy. It is distracted and frightened. And what it needs is to see stars shining out of the heavens in the midst of the darkness, attracting the world by rebuking that darkness and by giving it light, showing how it too can live that quality of life. He's saying we need to be like stars in the darkness and our, with our joy showing the world there is another way to live. And that will be attractive. I have a hunch that our joy is something secretly that the world wants but won't admit it wants. When they see believers out there and, and they see us joyful in the midst of pain and suffering and, and living in this world right alongside unbelievers, I think they secretly see that and want that. And so let us in our humility love them and go to them and tell them where we get that joy. Uh, I don't know if you guys, if you, if you know the name Joni Erickson Tata, she uh, is a Christian author. When she was 14, um, she had an accident and became paralyzed from her, her shoulders down. But she has gone on to live a life of just testimony to the Lord and His grace in, in her life. And she describes those who suffer in profound ways yet still have hope and joy as spectacles of glory. That you become this spectacle for people to see of glory as you have suffered yet still have joy. And so we have joy when we journey together. And lastly, we have joy when the journey is tough. We have joy when the journey is tough. And here we're looking at verses 9 and following. Where John writes, I have written something to the church. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So what John is talking about is a difficult situation in the church. There's another um, conflict happening in the church. And there's this leader named Diotrephes who is putting himself first, who's teaching falsely, does not acknowledge the authority of the apostles and he's dividing. And so this has become a difficult time in the, in, in the life of this church. And so we're reminded, how do we have joy in the midst of conflict and difficulty in our lives, but also in the church? Well, first we need to see what Diotrephes was doing he, and, and how we can learn from that. That division happens in the church when we like to put ourselves first. I mean, he says it just... just just plainly as that, Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first. And it's not just putting ourselves first, it's putting our agenda first. The, what we want to see in the church happen. When we do that, that can divide the church. And, and that's, that's being selfish. And not only that, he's not submitting to authority. So division can happen in the church when we don't submit to godly authority. When we subvert the leaders. We talk against them when we gossip. We don't submit to authority. We can divide the church. Instead, we ought to, if we have an issue with that authority, we go to that authority. We talk to them. We don't 
disturb and, and gossip and talk around them. And as John says, so if I come, I was verse 10, so if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. So here he's, he's blatantly saying that he's slandering us. He's not telling the truth. Wicked nonsense. He's spreading lies and rumors in this church. And not only that, in verse 10, he's refusing to welcome the brothers. He's stopping those who want to be welcomed and puts them out of the church. So he's, he's, he's physically removing people from the church, telling you aren't welcome here anymore. And so this is an example of um, dealing with somebody who is dividing the church publicly. And this is really a case that there needs to be church discipline in place. And that's really what John is coming to do in writing about it. This man, Diotrephes, needs to be under discipline. He needs to be corrected because he's harming the church of Christ. And so we also can deal with that conflict head on by calling it out, by calling that sin out publicly. Look again at verse 10. What is John going to do about that? He says, I will bring up what he is doing. What he's saying is, I'm going to call that public sin out publicly. If, if this man is doing something and damaging the church, we have to deal with it in a public manner. It's not fun. It's not enjoyable. It's difficult. But it has to happen. I will bring up what he's doing. And then he has an encouraging word to the church. He says, Beloved, if do not imitate evil, but imitate good. For whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil is not seen God. So here's just he's reminding the church and Gaius, look, what he's doing, what this guy is doing is evil. Don't don't imitate him. Don't follow him. Remember the truth. Remember what you are to do. Remember what is good. And then he brings up a different fellow named Demetrius. In verse 12, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We'll also add our testimony. And, and you know that our testimony is true. So another thing we're to do when there's controversy and division is lift up those people who are doing well and encourage them. So here he's honoring and elevating this Demetrius as sort of a counter to Diotrephes. So the implication for us is don't be a Diotrephes, be a Demetrius, right? And encourage those people who do well and elevate them and give them good testimony. And so journeying together is not easy. And a lot of times we hit conflict and we hit roadblocks and we hit division. But it doesn't mean we, one option you could have or think is, I want to leave. I want to depart. This is too hard for me. But we're not to do that. We're, we're to stick it out with each other and to be in the body of Christ with each other. You see, in the final greetings, he says, I'm coming to you. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Right, John, he sees a controversy. He could easily, look, I'm in my 80s. I don't need to come to this. Like, this is too much stress for me. I'm ready to retire and go to this island of Patmos and write Revelation. I don't want to deal with this conflict. He could say that, but he didn't. He's, he's going to them. He's pursuing this. He knows that these are young believers who need help. And he's going to engage and he's going to help them because he knows their joy is at stake. James 1, verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. How do we do that? You ever read that verse and wondered, how, how am I supposed to do that, James? Count it all joy when I meet various trials. The number one way you can do that is look to him who did it for you. 
Look to him who counted it a joy to enter into suffering for you. His name is Jesus. He was driven by joy. Hebrews 12 verse 2 tells us that. That looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That Jesus did it for you. He went to Calvary because he had joy that he was looking forward to. And don't get me wrong. Don't get Hebrews 12 too wrong. There was nothing enjoyable about the cross. There was nothing enjoyable about the mocking and the scourging and the trial and the betrayal of Judas, the denial of Peter, the desertion of the disciples. None of that was enjoyable. But Jesus knew what would be the result of his suffering. He would purchase his people. He would save his bride, you and me. And he would give us joy. You see, that's the beautiful thing about the God we worship is that he does not keep joy to himself, but he wants to give it away to us, to you and me. And we know when our chapter is over and the Lord is calling us home, he'll say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You see, heaven itself is an eternity of joy. Why? Because we're in Christ. Because we have Jesus. That's that's where we get our joy. And so as I close, ask yourself these questions. Do I display the joy I have in Christ? Am I displaying it? Can people see it on my face? Will I display it as I get older? We don't know how many years we have. We don't know how many days we have. But as we get older... Am I going to choose to display that joy and continue to serve my Lord? Am I going to display that joy as I walk with others in the church? Am I going to display that joy as I walk through suffering and pain and often with tears in my, on my uh, cheeks? Am I going to be joyful? With the Lord's help, we can be. Let's pray. Father, grant us joy. We cannot do it ourselves. This life is hard. There are trials. There are difficulties. But with you, anything is possible. You're so good to us to give us this joy and not keeping it to yourself. But thank you, Jesus, that you had joy even as you endured the worst pain and suffering and persecution. And not only that, but the turning away of the the Father's face and the outpouring of wrath in our place. You are so good. Help us to worship you today in Jesus' name.